Hopefully you've made your way to Acts chapter 20. We're going to finish the chapter this morning. I pray everyone had a good Thanksgiving. I know we did. We got to see all of our family. My brother and his family actually are down here visiting for the first time in over a decade, I think. This was, this was his old stomping grounds with us. And uh, although you guys will get to see him and meet him again uh, here in a few more weeks in January when we have our equip conference, so he'll be speaking at that. Anyway, it's kind of funny because I'm the younger brother. I've got more gray in my beard than he does. I don't get it, so I don't know how that happened, right? I'm excited about this passage in Scripture. I told Jill um, I'm not going to do it justice. It's one of those passages where there's so much in here, uh, I I just know I'm going to leave stuff out. And it it gnaws at me. It's just my personality. But just as last week we saw Paul making his way through all the regions that he had gone into and established churches, and he visited them, and the result of each visit was that they were encouraged, they were comforted, they were built up. Paul knew that this was his farewell tour to these churches. Uh, As he says in our passage this morning, everywhere that he had gone, the Spirit had been testifying to him that chains and afflictions awaited him. And so he knew this was his goodbye. And it's just, it's good to note that knowing this, Paul was intent to build them up. That's what his heart was. He didn't waste his time. He didn't talk about frivolous things. He built them up in the faith. Um, It would do the church so much good to live as though we'd never see each other again. Because we'd make better use of our time. We'd make better use of what we say, what we spend, what we do. That's what Paul did. What we're going to see today is is an inside glimpse of one of those encounters that Paul had with the church in building them up and encouraging him. And it's specifically with the church at Ephesus. It's a rich passage. This is a passage that many pastors turn to for pastoral training because it's Paul speaking to the elders at Ephesus. And it's so instructive for anybody who would desire a leadership position. But it's not limited to that. There are so many applications for the church as a whole. Because in in some way, some form, you're leading somehow. Whether it's your wife, whether it's your child, whether it's co-workers, there's always application to be made. So we're going to see, essentially, four quick points this morning. First, Paul's call to the elders to come to him in verse 17. Second, when when he meets them, he's going to recall the past with them. Verses 18 through 21. Then he's going to discuss the present, and then finally he'll speak about the future. So he's basically summarizing and recapturing everything that has happened, everything that is happening, and what it seems to be will happen. So knowing that, it'll help you structure Paul's speech to these Ephesian elders. With that, let's read, beginning in chapter 20, verse 17. It says, Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, and we'll stop there. I want to make this first point. Paul was in Miletus. If you remember last week, he had bypassed going to Ephesus because he was on his way back to Jerusalem. 
And he was carrying, we know from other scriptures, an offering from the Gentile churches to the church at Jerusalem. And he was hastening to get back to Jerusalem by Pentecost to, to bring that offering to them. And so he sailed past Ephesus, not because he didn't want to see them, but because he was trying to conserve time. And he lands at Miletus, which is 30 miles south of Ephesus. And because he loved the Ephesian church, he'd spent the most time with the Ephesian church. He has the elders of the church come down to Miletus to him. I love thinking about this point. It's a quick point, but it reveals Paul's heart as a shepherd. Everywhere we've seen this consistently throughout the book of Acts, Paul constantly displayed the shepherd's care and heart for his people. He told the Corinthian church, I constantly carry with me the burden of all the churches. He always wanted to build them up. So this gathering that we're going to read is specifically called for by Paul. And it's not all the church. It's only the elders present. But it's for the church as well. These elders at Ephesus needed one more time to hear the central claims of the gospel, the duties required of an elder, as well as the dangers to be aware of. So Luke gives us this precious glimpse once again into a private interaction that Paul had. I love thinking about that point. Paul's not... Paul's, this isn't written to boast about Paul. This was a private interaction. Reveals how Paul truly loved the church and the truth and his Lord. But reading on, here's what we sa- he said to them. We're going to read 18 through 21. It says, when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul's recalling his past there. There's three things that he notes. One, the character he maintained, the conditions he ministered in, and the mission that he was focused on. Paul was able to say, first, that he served the Lord in humility and with tears the whole time he was with them. That's an astounding statement to me. He was with them quite a long time. But every day, every night, as he served them, as he taught them, it was in humility and it was with tears. And these tears, uh, I think, is a reflection of Paul's understanding of the threats, the dangers that constantly threatened the church. He saw the church as, as his beloved, as his children in the faith. And just as any father who cares for their own children and their well-being knowing that when they go out of your house, there's going to be a myriad of of dangers that await them. And you have that, that loving parental heart. That's what I think is revealed here in Paul's character. But he was serving the Lord, he says. It's important to note. Any ministry... If, if you're undertaking any ministry, even a ministry to your own wife or to your own children, if you're not understanding that this is serving the Lord, you'll get burnt out, you'll get discouraged, you'll get distracted. Everything we do as God's children 
is first and primarily serving him. In serving my wife, in serving my children, teaching them about who God is, the gospel, all the claims of it, I'm serving Christ. That's what Paul says. He was serving the Lord by ministering to the Ephesians as well as anyone else. Well, when we really get this truth, church, it will transform how you serve. Because all of a sudden, you're conscious and you're aware that the Lord is examining my work. I'm not serving you for your approval. I'm serving the Lord for His approval. And it changes how I do things. It changes the attitude of heart that I carry. changes the methods, potentially. It must be the motivation of why we serve each other. When we have other motives, our character will also be changed. It will be revealed. If our motive in serving is self-seeking, for instance, we're more than likely not going to be very humble, as Paul was. Because when my desire in serving you is challenged by you, guess what's going to happen? I'm going to fight back. Because all of a sudden, I'm not getting my way. But in serving the Lord, my whole motive is different. My motive is self-seeking. If it's not gentle, if it's somehow wrong, misguided, whatever, the ministry itself will not be blessed. It will not be a fruitful ministry. And I, and I want to make this point clear. In the eyes of the world, it might be fruitful. You might actually grow an empire. But in the eyes of the Lord, it won't be blessed. He will not be in that. There's many ministries today where the, the men in those places are self-seeking ministers. We're going to see Paul warn about that. And they've built great empires and churches. But they're not serving the Lord. They're serving themselves. Their reward is short-lived. So what's astounding to me in this is that Paul lived a life, he's telling the Ephesian church, that anyone could inspect. He knew the whole time he was with them that he served the Lord with all humility, with tears, with trials. He would later say, we're going to see his conscience is clean. He didn't shrink back from telling them anything profitable. He lived a life that anyone could inspect. He lived like a book, in other words. I love this illustration. I love books. You could open it up and inspect it and read it at any point. So many today live their life where if, if you were to open up their life, they think, oh, no. <laughs> Can't look in there. We're going to talk about that in a moment with a clean conscience. And the, the blessing having a clean conscience is when it comes to ministry. But Paul could do a self-examination and say, my conscience is clean. How great a blessing it was. When once, as the Ephesians did in chapter 19, we confess our sins, God washes us, and He takes not only that sin, but also He bears the shame of that sin with us. Despite the shame, He calls us His own, as we just sang. I love that point. The Ephesian church understood this point. We saw that in chapter 19. They confessed their sin. They came out and exposed it. Why? So that their conscience was washed clean. They had nothing to be ashamed of. They knew their sin. They didn't deny it. It's just they're, they're not under the burden of it anymore. They could walk free. That's how Paul's walking. It's, what Paul is saying here, as far as the character he maintained, is really the essence of true leadership. Whether it's leadership in a church, leadership in a family, leadership at work, it ultimately is not simply the doctrine that you hold. 
but the life that you live. Not apart from your doctrine. Your doctrine is informing how you live. But when we, last year, when we went through the qualifications of leadership, there's one qualification you must be able to teach, but everything else focused on the character of the individual, right? Who are you really when no one else is looking? How are you going to live when no one else sees what you're doing? That's the essence of true leadership. Jesus said this in John 13, 15, I give you an example that you should do as I did to you. And he said that when he was washing the disciples' feet. So again, we'll visit this. But the conditions, the second point there, the conditions Paul ministered under was that he was under constant trials, mainly through the plots of the Jews, but it wasn't limited to the Jews and their hatred. We saw in Ephesus that the riot was stirred against the whole church. Paul maintained, nonetheless, his character and his mission under the harshest of conditions. So stressful at one point, he told the Corinthian church we saw last week, that he despaired even of life itself. So burdensome was the trials that he didn't want to live. Lord, just take me home. But the Lord infused him with his grace and power to keep going. So never did these trials deter him from wanting to fulfill the ministry set before him by the Lord. Which is that third point there, the mission that he was focused on. He testified to both Jews and Greeks, he said, of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's mission was evangelistic, and then secondly, it was disciple-making. He evangelized everywhere he went, and when people came to faith, he sought to build them up. That's the great work of the church. That's what we are to be about. You are to reach out to people in need. You're to show the love of Christ, share the gospel. Testify to them of repentance, the need for repentance. Every single person has. What is repentance? First, repentance literally means it's a change of mind. You begin to think about your situation differently. And the result of repentance is a change of course. Here's where many people get messed up, though. They try to change their life without changing their mind. You ever been there? You ever done that? Try to make reforms in your life, try to stop sinning, whatever. And you don't get very far because repentance hasn't happened. Your mind needs to start thinking differently about who you are, who God is, your relationship to God. Once that changes, then your life will begin to follow. So repentance is first a change of mind. That's why Paul started with that repentance toward God. But it's not an aimless toward, it's toward Jesus Christ, faith in Jesus Christ. He is the only answer for our situation. He is our sin bearer. He will be our judge if he's not our sin bearer. He's our savior. We're about to celebrate the Christmas season. So we change our mind about the life of sin we now live, where once we could live in it, now there's a present sorrow for those acts of sin. I want to say this as I thought about it. Repentance differs from remorse. Remorse, you feel sorry over the consequences of your decisions. And we've all been remorseful. None of us likes to bear the consequences of what we've done. But repentance is different than, than remorse. Repentance is sorrow over the act of sin itself. You begin to see the acts of sin in your life and hate them. Because you see how it's destroyed you how it might have destroyed your family, people you love, whatever the case, you begin to hate the sin itself. 
That's repentance. The Holy Spirit then, through this gateway of repentance, enters into our hearts and works His grace to begin to turn our desires to righteous acts, to gracious acts, to Christ-like acts in our life. So Paul's telling these Ephesians elders, every shepherd and every wise minister of the gospel, you must learn first to look for true repentance in people. You do not want to extend hope to somebody who has not demonstrated that they want it because it will give them a false sense of hope. It will be a deceptive kind of hope. When they demonstrate through repentance, yes, I am seeking hope, then truly the wise shepherd will be there with the gospel as an offer. Here's your hope. But moving on, Paul then discusses the present situation. Verse 22 through 27, if you want to follow. He says, And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not count my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Paul highlights these four present realities. One, the Spirit's preparation of what's going on. The Spirit of God, everywhere Paul went, was telling him that chains and afflictions awaited him. And I believe it was so as to prepare him to persevere. Paul's desire was to get to Rome, but the way that God was going to bring him to Rome was in chains, not in freedom. It would, it would undertake a change of Paul's desire. And it happened. So contrary to popular Christianity, Christ leads us by way of the cross, not by way of ease. So much of Christian culture today really teaches you to pursue a life of, of the easiest route. But that's not the way of our Lord. Dying to self and, and, and suffering for, for the gospel is not easy. It's painful sometimes because, as the gospel says, sometimes it divides even your family. But it's the right way. It's the way that God will be with you in and will walk through with you. The scriptures testify that the life of most resistance is the life of blessing. Here's what James wrote in James 1, verses 2-4. through Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. The Spirit was preparing Paul for a walk of steadfastness that he would surely need when he went to Rome. But his one desire in verse 24, he said this, I do not account my life of any value nor is precious to myself if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Because Paul had become a disciple of the cross and had by this time known his share of trials and sufferings, he had been persuaded that those trials were God's appointed means for his perfection and sanctification. He, so he didn't view what the Holy Spirit was testifying to him as a deterrent 
It didn't discourage him from walking that road, in other words. He knew the will of the Lord. Just because this is what awaits me doesn't mean this is not God. He'd known how God works. I want to ask you a question. How can somebody look at God's repeated warnings of chains and afflictions and not be deterred from walking that path? It's not, I'm sure, easy. If, if God was com- consistently telling you, hey, your future is chains and afflictions, would you not be tempted to say, then I'm, going, I'm taking a right? Yes, we would. So how do, we, how do we come to the place like Paul did, where he says, I'm not deterred, I'm going straight ahead. The key is in what he said. I do not count my life of any value or precious to myself. Paul, in other words, was already dead. As he said in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. He has died. It was Christ now who was his Lord. He lived no longer for himself. That's how he could walk into this situation and not be deterred. This is a, a good point I want you to consider. Paul wasn't pursuing his own dream, his own ambitions, his own desires, his delights, or his hobbies. He no longer lived for himself. So that when God now tested him and revealed to him that chains and afflictions awaited, it only served to confirm Paul's faith. My life is not my own. I've been bought with a price. He would tell the Corinthians, you've been bought with a price. Your life is not your own. It served to reveal Paul's one desire, if I may only finish my course in the ministry I've received. Trials, in other words, are the most efficient tool in God's hands to reveal our true desires and ambitions. Have you ever seen that in your own life? I imagine so many believers, if God revealed to you that that what awaited you was chains and afflictions, here's what we would start seeing. Depression, sorrow, sadness, disbelief, discouragement. Why? Because now that God's saying, here, here's what awaits you, what it's doing is it's drawing out where our desire really was. God, I didn't want that. I wanted to live this life. See how God's drawn out the motivations of our heart. What's really revealed is the desire of our heart for something other than what God had in store for us. Our depression will not be caused by anything other than my will not being done. That's what's depressing me. And what needs to happen is conformity to God's will. Remember what Jesus prayed in the garden for you. Not my will, Father, but your will be done. He prayed that for you. What we really want so often is, not thy will, Lord, but mine be done. True discipleship and growth in the grace of God is when we can unreservedly pray with the Lord, not my will, but your will be done. When that's truly your prayer, God, I don't want to pursue my own will. If change and afflictions is what awaits me, I'll gladly accept it. Because that's what you took for me. My life is not my own. I don't account it as precious to myself. I'm not pursuing my dreams, my hobbies, my future. My future is you. When we can pray as the Lord prayed in the garden, that's when discipleship begins. I want to read you a quote from A.J. Gordon, whom you guys are going to become if you stay any length of time at this church, well familiar with. 
He said, if the church will literally manifest Christ on earth, then she must be both a living and a dying church. The baptism of the Spirit into which we have been brought is designed to accomplish inwardly and spiritually what the baptism of water foreshadows outwardly. And that is to reproduce in us the living and the dying of our Lord. You see, when the Spirit of God indwells the believer, He's intent on reproducing in you the death and the resurrection of Christ. That's His work. And so when we are not engaging in the death of Christ, dying to ourselves, and the living to Christ, we're not being disciples. That's His work. That's His program for us. Paul had been baptized into Christ's death, and he had his eyes set on also obtaining that Christ's resurrection. Turn with me real quick to Philippians. I want to read this passage to you. Chapter 3, you'll know it immediately when we start reading it. This is Philippians 3, verse 8 through 11. Paul would write to the Philippian church, and I wonder if this was something he said to them when he went into Macedonia to encourage them, to build them up. Verse 8, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Just stop and think about that. The greatest thing in the world now is to know Christ Jesus our Lord. Everything I count as lost compared to that. If that desire, if that ambition is true, how much are we holding on to, church, and pursuing that's not fueling that? That's actually drawing us away from that desire. It's only weakening your faith. He says, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God depending on faith, that I may know Him. And here it is. And the power of His resurrection, and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, so that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. The means that He's going to attain to it, The Spirit's been testifying to him our chains and afflictions. Paul, how are you going to attain to the resurrection from the dead? Through chains and afflictions, dying to self. You see that? That's the work of the Spirit in every one of us as his children. If it's not happening in your life, you're stifling God's work in you. The Spirit has been given to reproduce in you the death and life of your Lord. Paul would say at the end of his life, his last letter and some of the very last words in 2 Timothy. I'll read it to you real quick. This is 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6 through 8. I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only me, but also all who have loved his appearing. That's what awaits any one of us who undergo both the death and life of Christ. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 would encourage us to finish our own course, to lay aside every weight and sin which would entangle us from doing so, and to keep our eyes on Jesus and how he himself finished his course, which was the cross. 
see, there's constant encouragements for us, church, to be like Paul here. Where is your true desire? Is it to truly fulfill God's ministry for you? Or is it to get a good retirement, an easy retirement? Or to, to have all your hobbies and dreams fulfilled? If so, it's not lining up with the Lord's. Not that he's necessarily against retirement. I'm not saying that. But he is against anything that would not be serving him. He's Lord, and he deserves all of us. So maybe that's where you are today. Maybe you're trying to follow Christ, but dragging around all this baggage. You need to be like Christian in Pilgrim's Progress. Not take another step forward in that journey until you've laid it down at the cross and proceed forward free of that baggage. Lay those weights and sins down. It's too great a load. It's too heavy a load for you to carry. I believe that this is really the mystery that, that eludes so many in the church. That when we crucify the flesh, when we conform to the death of Christ, then and only then do we enter into his life. So many of us haven't truly yet experienced the Christ life because we're still holding on to trying to live it in the flesh. We've all got those things we want to drag with us into this new life. And God says, lay it down at the cross. That's not my way. If we want God's blessing, if we want God's power, if we want the joy of the Lord, if we want the abundance that we've so often seen in the book of Acts, it's that path or no path. But how great a path it is. The freedom and joy when we take up the cross and follow him. Jesus said it this way, my burden is easy. It's light. Taking up the cross is not a burden. Why? Because it frees us from all that. He becomes our sin bearer, our burden bearer, our Savior. And he invites us to that. That's what the precious thing is. He invites us to do that. His invitation is to anybody. Hey, if you're heavy burdened, if, you're, if you come in weary, heavy laden, bow down with so many cares of life, bow down because of the weight of your sin. My invitation to you, Jesus says, is to lay it down. I'll be that burden bearer for you. I'll be that sin bearer for you. And you can have the joy of the Lord, freedom from it. So Paul says in verse 20 back in Acts, uh, verse 25, sorry. He says, I know now behold that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. That is a heavy statement from Paul. One that grieved him. We'll see it at the end of the passage. I'm not going to stop here, but it grieved Paul. Having to say goodbye to someone who's given and poured so much into you, that's, that's the hardest thing in the world. When someone has demonstrated a life, a selfless life, where they continually serve you, continually give themselves for you, and then they come to the point and say, I'll, I'll never see you again. Oh, what a loss. What a loss. But it's not hopeless for them. We'll see in a minute. Verse 26 and 27, Paul's conscience toward them is clean. I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. I love that statement. Conscience is clean. He's clear of their blood. The, the great picture in Ezekiel of the watchman warning, right? Paul uses this word shrink back. He, he didn't withdraw from declaring the counsel of God. The reality for every pastor is there's truths in here that you know when you preach them, it's going to offend people and you're going to take hits for it. And Paul said, I didn't withhold it, knowing it would take 
It'd be costly. He said, because it's still profitable for you to hear. It's not just for elders that that warning is true, though. Every elder's got to be courageous in declaring the truth. If they're going to shrink back because of what will happen when they declare the whole counsel of God, they're not fit to be a leader. The church needs men who are going to be courageous in telling the truth. It is only through the truth that God delivers people and grows them. So there's a commitment to the word of God that is foremost in any leadership position. But there's got to be that same commitment in any position. You fathers out there, you've got to be committed to the word of God for the sake of your children. Because their little sinful hearts will draw them away. And you need to be that voice warning them, exposing those things, training them in righteousness. It's going to be hard. But that's the call. His conscience was clean. He didn't shrink back. I love that statement. But let's move on. I I, I want to get to these next verses. So then Paul moves to speaking about the future. Verse 28 through 35. So he says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. Remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who are with me. In all things, I've shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. Wolves, he points out. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God. Why? Verse 29, because fierce wolves will come in. I want to read you some cross-references and then we're going to talk about this. In Matthew 10, Jesus said this, Matthew 10, 16, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. 2 Peter 2, verses 1 through 3, Peter says this, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. The reality is, church, that there are always going to be threats from the outside. Some of these wolves are disguised in sheep's clothing. Some are not. But they will always be hammering away at the gospel of Christ. So Paul says, be on guard, pay careful attention yourselves. But not only wolves, he also says men who try to exalt themselves within the church. There's the threat from without, but there's a threat from within. Third John 9 through 11, here's what John said. He says, I've written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he's doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome 
the brothers. And he also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. When the church loses sight of the fact that they are always going to be under attack, they're going to cease to be shepherds. The first duty of a shepherd is they watch and protect the flock from wolves. That's the first duty of a shepherd. They then feed the sheep as well. They do all the other work of a shepherd. But the the shepherd who fails to be on the alert for the sake of his flock is no shepherd at all. He says, be on the alert. Literally, be on the alert means to refrain from sleep. Its application was transferred to a religious sense and carried the meaning of mindfulness, the mindfulness of threatening and dangerous situations, caring for the salvation and preservation of others. I love, I love this point. So what was the precious reason? Why does Paul say, pay careful attention to yourselves? Why does he give this double exhortation, be on guard, be on the alert? The precious reason in verse 28 is this. He says, to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. The church is God's special and precious possession according to the scriptures. He obtained it with the cost of his own blood. 1 Peter 2.9, Peter writes, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Understanding and viewing the church as God's own possession causes a shepherd to view you differently. You know that? You want elders who view you as God views you, as a precious possession, like Peter says, that he bought with his own blood. You see, in a sense, the church is on loan in that sense to under-shepherds. Care for them. They're mine. Care for them like they're your own. He's encouraging these elders to understand how God sees and views his bride. Paul would bring the Corinthians um, to a certain point of understanding of of this costly possession and how the church is to, to, to love, to build up, to care for each other. The Corinthians in their exercise of freedom was just destroying each other. They were more concerned about my freedom rather than your upbuilding. And here's what Paul wrote to them in 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 11. He says, Take care lest this liberty of yours somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined. The brother for whose sake Christ died. See, when we're more concerned about getting my way and my freedom, I want my way, and it destroys someone else's faith, what you're forgetting is that Christ died for that one you're destroying. That's what Paul is saying to the Ephesian church. He would write to the Ephesians in his letter, chapter 5, Husbands, to love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Christ loved the church and he gave himself up for the church. And so when he gives the church to under shepherds to care for, he says, remember who they are to me. I love her. And I gave myself up for her. It cost me my own blood. The unmatchable resource, though, in doing this work, and this is, this is so good. He says in verse 32, 
And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I commend you to God and the word of his grace. So often, it's so tempting in leadership positions, whether in a church, in a home, wherever, to turn to your own ingenuity, to, to turn to your own wisdom, to turn to your own charisma, to keep things going, to build up, to attract anything that causes us to look inwardly toward ourselves in order to have a fruitful and effective ministry. More than this, when it comes to actually overcoming and dwelling sin, what we usually try to do is just pull up our bootstraps and stop sinning. And we can't. It just, we keep sinning. Because that's what the flesh does. It's a serious and important point for us to consider. When so many threats face the church, what hope is there for us to be victorious? When we face threats of wolves, of deceivers, of self-glorying men, of persecutions from the Jews, riots from the Gentiles, and the worst of all, and the greatest threat of indwelling sin in my own members, what hope and what path of victory is there for us? Essentially, nothing but Christ and His Spirit is sufficient for you. Nothing. So in your battle against sin, church, in your efforts to serve God, in your efforts to minister, if it's not through the power of the Spirit, by His Word, it won't. It won't avail anything. Have you ever noticed in your life, just kind of spinning your wheels, examine this point. Maybe this is why. Maybe you're trying to progress forward in your walk through means that God hasn't blessed. It's undoubtedly what Paul's saying when he says, I commend you to God. In the New Testament sense, Christ or God is no longer out there in heaven, but rather he's here on earth embodying the church in his spirit. I, I want to bring up this point over and over and over for us to get. I won't stop saying it. Christ is here with us in his spirit. He is a present help for you now. He's not out there off somewhere. He is with you in his spirit. And he's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. He's a present help in time of need. There's five dangers within us that Paul outlines real quick, and we're going to end with this. And I say these, I point these out to end with, because there's a pattern I've seen in myself that can develop and in, in, in churches. With this passage in particular, pastors will preach about wolves and sheep's clothing and, and men arising from among yourselves, drawing people after them. Those are all real threats that we don't need to ignore. But so often what it creates is this, is this kind of shell mentality where we build up our walls and guard ourselves from the wolves. And all the while, you know what the greatest threat is? It's my own sin. And so it creates this us first them kind of attitude. And Paul reminds the elders at Ephesus that there's five things that can equally damage the ministry. In verse 28, Paul said this, Pay careful attention to yourselves. Carelessness, in other words. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flocks. I want you to notice that. Paul's not saying, hey, elders, care for those sheep. He says, care for yourself so you can care for the sheep. So many elders, so many leaders are careless in their own walk. They're not going to be effective in leading you. 
Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. He reminds them of how he lived and how he conducted his life while on earth with them. His pattern of life is worth emulating. I love Paul's statements. He says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. I don't know that I'd have the confidence to say that to you right now. (laughs) I want to. But Paul with a clean conscience could say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. He didn't live in a careless way. Failing to stay alert is forgetting the cost by which you've been bought. There's also the sin of shallowness. In verse 32, he says, I commend you to God, to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Paul had learned by experience the sufficiency of God and His word. So many of us are so... We're not, we're not at a point in our walk where we've experienced God in that way where we can say, He's sufficient for you in this trial. His word is sufficient. If someone's going through a trial, a temptation, we're not able to point them for help. It's the sin of shallowness. There's also the sin of covetousness. He says, I did not covet anyone's silver or gold or apparel. He didn't minister in order to gain silver or gold. He coveted no one's clothes. He gave the gospel to them free, and he ministered, he said, to his own needs. In fact, Paul would write to the Ephesian church, Covetousness is idolatry, Ephesians 5.5. When you covet something, it is an idol. The elders whom Paul is exhorting are especially said to be free from a love of money. It's not wrong, in other words, I want to point this out. It's not wrong, Paul would say this, for him as an apostle to demand support. But he ministered to his own needs to lay them a good example. Which was the next point. Laziness. He earned his own way as a tent maker. He had the authority to demand financial support, but he chose to show them a good example. Paul would say, quoting scripture, worker is worthy of his wages. You shall not muzzle an ox while it's treading grain. But ministers in particular and lay members need to always be aware there's the threat of laziness in ministry. There's also the threat of laziness in our duties as husbands and fathers. Right? In any position, as mothers, you can be lazy in your spiritual walk and duties as his child. Lastly, he warns them of selfishness. Verse 35 he says, In all these things I've shown you that by working hard in this way we must help the weak. Remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, It's more blessed to give than to receive. How many of you have? Have given to someone without asking for something in return. Someone who's in need. Make it a habit. There's joy in that. The blessing is not in receiving. It's in giving. Be warned of living in a selfish way. True ministry, true Christ-like love always has giving as the verb. Consider these verses. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that He gave. Galatians 2.20 Christ who loved me and gave himself for me. It's always the heart of Christ-like love as you give. You're not seeking your own. Beware of selfishness. All of us first, though, are on a receiving end. We can't give what we don't have. We love because he first loved us. We've got to receive the love of Christ 
and then we turn around and give the love of Christ. We're all in a humble position because we don't have anything to offer our Lord, except here I am. What can I give you, Lord, as we just sang? I don't have anything to offer you, except me. I love this beautiful passage. It ends in verse 36 and following. When he had said these things, he knelt down and he prayed with them all. In verse 37, there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had said that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. I want to read verse 1 of chapter 21. It says, And when we had parted from them and set sail... Literally, the idea is there when we had been torn away from each other. It compliments that sorrow, right? Church, there's something beautiful here. I I long to see this kind of depth of care and relationship with each other. Paul, in saying these warnings, the hardest part for them was not the warnings. It was that they'll never see Paul again. They loved each other. But it takes effort. It takes giving of yourself. Paul said of himself, I was with you night and day. I gave myself to you night and day. The depth of relationship that was built through that kind of life lived. Oh, I long to see it in our church. It's a life well lived. Nothing to be ashamed of. To give ourselves to each other in love, in service, in building each other up, and sharing the love of Christ with others. There's nothing. Yes, you may not be able to do your hobbies. Yes, it may interrupt your future and the plans you had, but it will be a reward worth having. That's what Paul, in this passage, I love about it. It comes to the end and says, wow, they had to be torn away from each other. That's beautiful. That's how the church should be. As I pray, I'll invite the worship team up. We're going to sing one last song about that. Father, thank you so much. I love that beautiful passage, and I know there's so many truths in there that could have been expounded on in greater depth. Lord, I pray as we go home today that we think about these many truths we saw and surveyed. That would be a rich feast for us to think about the life Paul lived with these Ephesian elders, with the Ephesian church, the warnings he gave, the blessings promised that God is with us. Father, the depth of love they, they had built with one another. I pray you do that kind of work here at Waypoint, Lord. A true manifestation of the love of Christ through serving, through giving, through meeting each other's needs. As you said in the Gospels, giving food to the hungry, giving a cup of water to those who are thirsty, going to those who are in prison and ministering to their needs. As you do it to the least of these, you do it unto me. Father, that's where joy is. That's where you're to be found. Not in self-seeking ministry, but self-giving ministry. Because that was your pattern. You gave yourself for us. And you conform us to that pattern. That's true life through death. As we sing this last song, Lord, we pray you're honored because you are only king. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Please stand.